Alrighty, alrighty. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> What's going on, guys? Um, yeah, I'm excited to be here today. As Daniel said, my name is Aaron. I've been on staff for like two or three years um, or so, and I will be heading out with the uh, Buffalo team to uh, plant a church at the University of Buffalo. And so first off, I just want to kind of thank you guys and say last week was very encouraging for me as someone getting ready to leave. Um, also having a lot of attachment to this church. I got saved in this church. And um, so yeah, I, I was just thankful for uh, kind of the, the carnival that we had and just your guys' support in that. And I'm excited to uh, get to talk about the word today. So for the next few weeks, we're kind of in a transition period. We went through Romans for really the entire spring, and then we haven't yet um, gotten into our, our summer sermon series. And so for this week and next week, we're, we're going to be doing some standalone sermons. Um, and I got to admit, I'm not the type of guy who actually loves doing standalone sermons. Um, I like structure. I like being told what to do. And so I feel like I actually generally do better if I'm just told, like, hey, do this passage. That's what you're going to do. Um, but the good thing about standalones, and particularly preaching standalones, is I can just shamelessly preach from my favorite books and my favorite passages, um, and that, that's what I plan on doing today. And so if you guys would just pray with me, we're going to get right into it. Father, um, God, we love you, and we need you, and Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us today. Like Cassie was saying, that there would be a, a purpose to why we are here. God, that purpose would be to know you better, to love you more. God, just speak to every one of us in whatever way we need to today. I just pray that our worship and our, our teaching and our studies will just be worthy of you. We ask you to help us in that. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today my hope is to give you guys kind of a macro, big, big scale level view of the book of Philippians. Alright, and so the book of Philippians was written to uh, the first church that Paul started in the eastern side of Europe. And it tells that story in Acts 16. And this letter is a little bit different than a lot of the other letters to the different churches that Paul sent. You think of like 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and Colossians. Those books and letters contain a lot more like instructive teaching. You guys are doing this wrong. This is how you can fix it. That's really the makeup of, of most of those letters. But Philippians is a little bit different. The bulk of Philippians is filled with things like thanksgiving and encouragement and exhortation. Now, I don't know if it's fair to say that, that Paul had favorites. But if he did, it would be a good guess to, get a good guess to say that the church at Philippi was one of his favorites. You can see it in the beginning of chapter 1, how much he really cares for them. He talks about how he longs to see them. But in addition, what makes this letter so compelling, particularly to me, is that I believe he empathizes with this church. You see, Philippi was located in a really patriotic part of Rome. And so because of this patriotism, you can imagine that when Paul comes in and, and tells these people that Jesus is king and that Jesus needs to be the Lord over their lives, they don't take it very well. And because of this, as he started this church and he ended up eventually leaving the church to pursue others, 
that church had to deal with this common bond that Paul shared of, of suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel, among other trials for their faith. And so as Paul writes this letter during one of his many stints in prison, he exhorts them to do one thing. In the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the hardship, he says in chapter 2, verse 5, to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And so if there was a thesis statement for this whole book of Philippians, I think that this would be it. To adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So for the rest of our time, we're just going to be looking throughout this whole book of how Paul kind of supports this thesis statement with all other types of ways that we can put on and adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I have six examples, six uh, things that we're going to look at, and we're going to get right into them. And so the first one, to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, is to see God's plan from an eternal perspective. From an eternal perspective, not our own narrow earthly view, not just the things that we see here. And so as mentioned, Paul is writing this letter from a jail cell. And so most of us would say that that's a good reason to maybe be confused with what God's doing. A good reason to be upset with why you're there. Like, think of all the people that he could be reaching if he wasn't in the jail cell. But all the reasons, or well, one of the reasons that I love Paul is that if there was anyone who could be prideful or could be selfish in, in his gifts or his giftings, it was Paul. If, if, if there was anybody who kind of could have that, like, machismo, I'm the best, I, I'm prideful because of it, it was Paul. I mean, he, he spent his whole born-again life making disciples and planting churches and having great boldness in the face of persecution. If anybody had the right to be mad or confused about why God put him on the bench in jail, it was Paul. But instead, what does he say? What is his conclusion as to what is happening since he's in jail? Verse 12, chapter 1, he says, What has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. What has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. It seems a little confusing, seems a little puzzling. But he gives two reasons for this. The first reason is that he says the whole imperial guard knows why he's there. He says this in verse 13, and it's important to note that I think the only reason that this works is that, that Paul didn't seem like much of a powder. Like Paul didn't seem like the type of guy to like kick rocks and get all upset, that, oh, I'm in jail, I'm just going to sit here and mope. Um, I, I don't think that this works if he's that type of guy. And instead, we have really good evidence to see that Paul's sharing the gospel wherever he is. It really doesn't matter if he's in jail, if, if he's out on the streets, he's doing it wherever he can. And elsewhere in the Bible, it actually, it actually gives examples of, of Paul preaching the gospel to people in a jail cell. And, and I actually find this idea funny, um, I guess just as I was processing it and thinking it through. Like if I go out um, on campus or on the street and I'm trying to talk to somebody about Jesus, they can just like run away. They can just leave. They don't have to listen to me. Um, but it's actually kind of cool that, that these guards were being forced to sit there and more or less listen to Paul. Um, I mean, they had, if, they're, if they're guarding the jail cell, um, they just have to sit there and deal with it. And, and I'm sure they tried to, to beat it out of him to, to get him to stop. But there's really no evidence that would suggest that, that Paul stopped because they, they tried to get him to. And so because of that, a group of people in the Imperial Guards who otherwise maybe never would be approached with the gospel, were literally forced to hear it, forced to see an example of what it looks like to praise God 
And I find that just kind of cool. And in Acts 16, it tells us a specific story of a jail guard that got saved when God busted Paul out of jail. Both Paul and Silas were in prison, and in Acts 16, it says, Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that shook the foundations of the jail, and and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. So just, I guess, imagining that real quick, just an earthquake, chains come off, doors come open. But instead of, of leaving the guard, instead of accepting the freedom that obviously God had given them there, he stops the jail guard from, from committing suicide because I mean, the jail guard might as well have committed suicide. He was, he was better than dead anyway because his prisoners were going to get away. But he stopped him from committing suicide, shared the gospel with him, and had him baptized that night. Do you guys have any guesses about what city that happened in? If you guessed Philippi, you were right. That happened in Philippi. And so as Paul writes about the jail guards knowing why he was there, about the jail guards hearing about Jesus, I imagine he thinks back to to one of his first Philippian disciples who also happened to be a jail guard, who also happened to hear the gospel because of his imprisonment. But of course, like we said, that wasn't the only benefit. Not only was Paul actually producing fruit where he was at in his current situation, but also it says that his suffering was strengthening the faith of his brothers in Christ. It says in verse 14, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. And I think in this we kind of get the idea of, of really practicing what you preach. Right, Paul taught to be bold in your faith. He taught to, to not fear persecution. But for whatever reason, it would seem as if that message hadn't really like stuck with his brothers in Christ around him. And it was because of his imprisonment that these men started to catch on to that teaching. It was because of his imprisonment that these people saw, I think, that Paul actually believes what he says. He actually does not fear in the face of persecution. He actually will go to jail, go at all costs for the gospel. And so this just begs the question in our lives, is there actually proof in your life that you really believe what you say. If you're discipling someone to be in the word more, are you in the word daily? This is a challenge I put on myself as well. If you're challenging someone to be in the word more, is is it clear? Like, does someone that you're discipling know that you're in the word? You don't have to, like, showboat it. but, But is it obvious that you're in the word? Do you know the Bible? Are you talking to people about what God is teaching you through the word? If you want someone to be more bold in sharing the gospel or to pray more faithfully, do people see that in your life? And I hope so. Because being told that something is good means a lot less than being shown that it's good. And so because of Paul being in jail, we see that the gospel actually did advance. And here's the thing, though. Here's the thing I want to clear up. I can guarantee that that he was not excited to be there. And I don't want it to get mixed up that that we have to be pumped up and love every one of our life circumstances. The point of seeing your life or your life situation from an eternal perspective is not that you love every season of your life. That's not the point. 
the point is to know and to trust that God will make the most out of all the brokenness in the world. He'll make the most out of every circumstance and situation that you're in. If you will allow him to do that. And so in whatever life circumstances you find yourself in, look for ways that God might be advancing his gospel through it. Look for ways that he might be growing you through it. And so we come to number two. How can we put on the attitude of Christ? Number two is to believe our reward is in heaven. All right, so we're going to read a little bit here. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20 should be on the screen. It says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So let's understand what Paul is really saying here, right? He, he's torn between two options, and really at, at its core what those two options are is, is life and death. Being on this earth, no longer being on this earth. Life, which means doing the work of Christ. To live is Christ. To live is to do the work of Christ, to do the will of Christ, to live for Christ. And death, which means being with Christ. But he's not torn between the two because like, he can't decide which is better for him. He actually makes it very clear which option is better for him. Verse 23, I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And so he sees that it is actually a sacrifice for Christians to continue living on this earth. And that idea might actually seem a little weird, but it's actually a sacrifice. We're actually losing something in a sense, or at least we're, we're delaying something better by continuing on this earth. You know, for those outside of Christ, this is their reward. For those outside of Christ, this is their heaven. But for those who are in Christ, we gain more from not being here. And so then why is he torn? What, what's, what's this consternation for? It's not because he's got a lot of life left to live. It's not because he, he really wants to travel and he's got things he, he wants to do. It's not because he has goals and he has aspirations that he wants to meet. That's, that, that's not why he wants to stay on earth. He's torn because the only reason he's still living is for the benefit of others. He knows that that is the only reason that he's here. He's not here to fulfill his own desires, to achieve his own goals, to get to do fun things. His heart longs to be with Jesus, but he knows that if he's gone, he can no longer serve those on earth. And you know, I, I think many different people think different reasons as to why we don't see the same type of like, radical generosity and, and radical boldness as in the early church. Um, I think we see that sometimes, obviously, but, but more often than not, sometimes we don't see that. And there's merit to a lot of those different ideas, but I, th I think the idea that I think about a lot, 
the reason I give the most merit to as to why we don't see that kind of radical generosity and boldness that we see in Acts is that we don't actually believe that the reason that we're here, the reason that we continue to live is for the benefit of others. I don't think that we're completely sold out for that idea. The only reason that we are here is to to do the work of Christ. And guys, can you imagine if the church sold out for this idea? Just, Just our little group here in Cincinnati, can you imagine the gospel fruit that would come if we sold out for this idea that to live is to live for Christ. To live is for the benefit of others, for the glory of God. What would your life look like the reason you got out of bed in the morning is for the glory of God and the good of others. If the way you spent your money, the decisions you made, the way you spent your time, where you chose to live was all because of the belief that to live is Christ. Can you guys imagine how much fruit may come from that in your life? And to believe that all of your reward is in heaven is naturally to believe that we are only on earth for the, good, for the good of others and for the glory of God. And if we really believe this, then may our lives actually be a reflection of it. May the choices that we make, the things that we do, be a reflection of what we actually believe. And so number three, how can we put on the attitude of Christ? Number three is to endure like the gospel is worth it. Endure like the gospel is worth it. We'll pick back up in verse 27. It says, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. So when, when we're adopted into Christ's family, we're also given a new identity and we're given new citizenship. We no longer, like we just talked about, we no longer belong to this earth. We're aliens on this earth. We're citizens of heaven. So what I think Paul is trying to say here is that as citizens of heaven, we should really live like the gospel is worth it. Like live like it's worth fighting for. And remember, again, the, the Philippians were facing intense persecution for their faith. This is where this encouragement and exhortation is coming out of. And I can imagine that they were a little bit worn down. Maybe they were discouraged. But the charge to them and to us and to all different types of people from all different types of places and nations is to stand in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to fight for the gospel while we're here. To not be deterred by the world around you, but to fight for the kingdom of heaven. And this is a cool message. Because I think there's uh, unity amidst trials actually sends a message to others. It it says in verse 28 that if if we stand firm together, that this is a sign of destruction for them. Them being, being those who oppose you. It's a sign of destruction. It's a sign that we won't be shaken by the threats of the world. That we won't be moved by the temptations of the world. And I hope that you guys notice the key factor in this plan of standing firm together. And it's unity. The way that we stand firm against the world is to be on one accord with each other, in one spirit. And uh, earlier in the spring when I preached over Romans 14, kind of talked about this idea of like, we don't have the time to waste fighting with each other. 
We don't have the time to waste not being unified. We can't afford to waste our efforts in opposition with each other. We must fight for the gospel like the souls of billions, billions of people depend on it. And if we're going to fight for the gospel, we have to fight together as a team. This church body that God has given us is for a purpose. So let's not break it apart and make things, honestly, just harder on ourselves. May we be unified for the purpose of the gospel. And I, and I know, again, that, that this is coming in the face of persecution to the original readers. We may not face the same type of persecution that the Philippians did at that time. But there are certainly things as citizens of heaven that we're going to have to sacrifice and suffer through if we want to live a life worthy of the gospel. It might be your pride. It might be just being around someone that you don't really enjoy being around. It might be doing things that you don't particularly enjoy. But the question that we have to ask ourselves in doing this and pursuing others with the gospel in unity is, is the gospel worth it? Like, is this all worth it? Because if it is, can we just put all of this stuff aside? Can we put our pride to the side? Can we put our preferences to the side? Seek unity in pursuing others with the gospel. Is the gospel worth it? And if the answer is yes, then let's do this. Let's stand firm in unity with each other. And so that question brings us to number four. How we can adopt the attitude of Christ. And it's to understand the value of knowing God. I told you guys, we're flying through this book. We're already in chapter three. We're going to pick up in chapter three, starting in verse, uh, the back end of verse four. It says, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Of course, this is Paul talking. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in, the, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. And so as I mentioned earlier, if anybody has enough religious accolades to boast about, it's Paul. But I don't think that's what he's doing here. I don't think he's just showing you his trophy case so that you can say Paul's awesome. Paul's warning the church about those who put more value in religious exercises than they care about knowing Jesus. And certainly Paul's not saying that doing Christian type things is bad. I don't think he's saying that. But he comes from a world and being with the Pharisees that just elevates this status of, of being a Christian elite or, or being a religious elite more than they value knowing God. And I think that this is still a real danger for us today. I think this is a danger for us in our church. Um, things like leadership and leadership opportunities, those are great. They serve a purpose. But there's still danger in assigning your value as a Christian or assigning the worth of being a Christian in these leadership opportunities and leading a life group and leading worship on stage and teaching and being a mentor. There's a temptation to assign more value to that than there is just value in knowing Christ. 
And so my prayer is that we wouldn't put more value in being a leader or a mentor than we put value in knowing God. We take it from Paul, someone who has done everything, has all these religious accolades the world could offer, and he calls them all dung compared to knowing Christ. That's what the CSB translates, translates it as. Some other translations use the words trash, filth, rubbish. And that word in the Greek is a really, really strong word. I'll just say that it's a very, very strong word that he uses to describe all these things that he's done, all these accolades, all these worldly titles that he's had. And I think he uses that strong of a word to make it very, very clear that the only value in being a Christian is knowing Christ. There is no value in being a leader. There is no value in being a pastor outside of the value of knowing Christ. And you know, one day I was, uh, I was talking with a Mormon missionary. Um, we, you guys know we, we have a bunch of Mormon missionaries on campus and sometime in the fall I was uh, having a meeting with two of them and um, he was telling me about how, how they believe that when they get to their version of heaven that they can kind of work their way into achieving like a God status. Um, that, that's a part of, of their belief, I suppose. And so I was pressing him on this a little bit. And um, just, you know, why do, why, do you, why do you believe this? Why do you think this is necessary? And this was his response to me. He said, well, you know, don't you think it might get kind of boring just like worshiping God forever in eternity? Like, just sitting there playing the harp. Like, don't you think that'll get boring eventually? Don't we have to work for something? Don't we need to, to, to push forward towards something in heaven? And, uh, man, when he said that, my heart sank. And it was at that moment, and my thought and my response was that, man, you don't know the same God that I, don't, that I know then. Like, if, if that's how you view God's worth, if that's what you view following God as, you don't know the same God as me. If worshiping God forever in heaven isn't enough reward, then you don't know the same God as me. The essence of being a Christian is that I know I don't need to become like God to receive my reward. Like we talked about how our reward is in heaven. I just want to get it straight that the the pearly gates and, and no pain and no tears and no sorrow and, and no sickness, like, those are good parts of heaven, right? That's good, but that's not what is, like, the bulk of the reward. The reward is being in the full presence of Christ. That is our reward that we look forward to in heaven. And so if we don't believe that, then this idea of the surpassing value of knowing Christ will not connect with us. The essence of being a Christian is knowing that our full reward is to just know God. Just give me Jesus. Just let me dwell with Jesus. And I will count all things as rubbish when compared to just knowing God. So we come to number five. Number five is to dwell on what is good. Dwell on what is good. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. 
And so when I was reading this, the word dwell kind of stuck out to me a little bit. Like that's, I guess, maybe the main verb of the entire passage, dwell on these things. And so I looked it up, and, and Blue Letter Bible, if you guys have never used it, is a really cool tool. It helps kind of define what, what the ancient Greek would use as that word, and, and it gives it kind of the context of, of what it, a certain word would be used at that time. And so I looked up on Blue Letter Bible the, the definition that they have for this word that we translate to dwell is to reckon inward, to count up, or weigh the reasons, or to deliberate. And so we see that, that dwelling on what is good becomes more than just thinking about good things. It would seem as if dwelling actually requires a serious amount of time and effort. It requires us to be willing to ask hard questions and face tough realities. I don't think that when God calls us to, to dwell on what is good, that he calls us to just forget what isn't good. I don't think he says that we should suppress what isn't good. That's not what dwelling on what, what is good means. Now just, in, just before this, verse 6, Paul says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so sometimes... I think in order to dwell on good things, like the character of God and the good gifts of God, the goodness of the gospel, you'll have to go through the struggles of reckoning with the stresses and the worries of the world. I think that is part of dwelling on what is good, is working through and out of what isn't good. Instead of suppressing what's not lovely, suppressing what's not true, we might have to be faithful and fervent in prayer. We might have to have the endurance to just keep going, keep letting God work these things out. As we've talked about in our life circumstances, there are going to be seasons of our lives, you guys know this, that things just aren't clicking. Like we're going to have seasons of our life where I'm just not feeling it. But to dwell on what is good, in order to dwell on what is good, we have to work through those and it will require work. But as we commit to a life of faithful prayer and humble patience, trusting that the Lord will get us there, I believe that we'll find this peace that Paul talks about. This peace that surpasses all understanding. And we'll find peace in what is good by dwelling on what is good. And so the last one we have, the last way that we're looking at how we can adopt the attitude of Christ is to be content in Christ, be content in God. We're going to be in Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, because you have once again, uh, once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So I'm going to assume you guys know at least one of those verses in there. You've heard those, one of those before. And I just have to get this off my chest. 
Um, I promise I'm not making fun of anybody. Um, I've done this myself. But Philippians 4.13 does not mean I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so toss 400 pounds on that bench press and let's get to work. It doesn't mean I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so I'm going to go ace this math test. That's not the original purpose and meaning of this verse. But that's a good thing. It's good that it doesn't mean that because the beauty of this verse is that it actually has very little to do with me doing anything and it has a lot to do with Christ. It has very little to do with me achieving anything, but it has a lot to do with what Christ has achieved and will continue to achieve. And let's find out why. You know, we notice that here Paul says that he's learned to be content. And so right there, that that word learn kind of sticks out to me, and we see that mankind naturally is not content. That's not something that comes naturally to us in our flesh. Even the richest of the rich always want more. We always continually say, oh, I'll be content after I have this. And then we get it, oh, I'll be content if I have this. Contentness is not natural to us. But because Jesus has made us new creations, we are actually able to learn how to be content. And actually, if I had to guess the reason why this is at the end of the letter, it's because in order for God to teach us how to be content, we have to start stripping off that old flesh, letting God strip off those old desires. We have to have things like an eternal perspective. We have to know what it's like to fight for the sake of the gospel. We have to really value just knowing Christ above all things. And at the end of the day, God has promised to give us all that we need to carry out his will for our lives. For some, like Paul, that means having an abundance. And for others, also like Paul, that means having very little. And so I conclude that in order to learn how to be content, we may have to and almost will certainly have to go through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. That's what Paul was saying here. He's learned to be content in every circumstance because he's had a lot and he's had little. And when he had a lot, he realized, well, that's not really worth more than Christ. And when he had a little, he realized, well, Christ is still worth it. And so we'll probably have to go in life through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And the hope in that is to realize that Throughout it all, Christ is worth it. Throughout it all, we can still be content in whatever the Lord has given us. Because our joy in the Lord is not based on what we have currently. And so my paraphrase for verse 13, I think it's great just how it is, but paraphrase to kind of get across what I think it's trying to say is, I can do all things God asks of me Because I am dependent upon and content in Christ. I can do all things God asks of me because I am dependent upon and content in Christ. So this is awesome because we no longer make this verse about ourselves. Again, like I've I've done this probably like my whole life until five years ago. I made it about myself. But we return to the original meaning of of letting this verse point to Christ and letting this verse point to what Christ will do in us and how he can make us content. We can learn how to be content to do the work of Christ no matter if we're in the highest of highs or the lowest of lows. And so as we close here, I want to do one last thing. Um, 
I want to read one more section of Philippians. You guys have been very generous in letting me read virtually the entire book today. And so, um, and we've talked a lot about how we can follow the example of Jesus. And of course, we know within the Gospels, the narratives of uh, Jesus' life, there, there are a ton of examples of, of we should do this because Jesus did it. But if we go back to the thesis of the book, we return to what comes after our thesis in chapter 2, verse 5. We'll see the greatest example of the attitude of God. So let's read that real quick. Starting in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I told you that Philippians is one of my favorite books. Philippians contains one of my favorite passages, and it's this. And, and honestly, it's kind of even hard to know where to go from here. Like, I think there's so much in this. But what is clear here is that in that moment, as Jesus came down, took on flesh, carried out the work of the gospel, in that moment, Jesus sacrificed far more than we could ever do by following his example. That's a good thing. We have an example who, like we said, practiced what he preached. We have an example who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves and has sacrificed far more than we could ever sacrifice for him. Jesus willingly left the throne of heaven to come into a broken earth, to be subject to the laws of the earth, to have to suffer through annoying stuff like being tired and hungry and thirsty. He experienced pain he never experienced before. The book of Isaiah says in chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, lowly esteemed. The God of the universe chose to be wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, wrongly punished, for something he did not do by his own creation. He suffered beatings, mockings, ultimately suffered death and separation from his greatest treasure in the Father, the God that by no means was obligated or pressured into doing this, willingly did this, willingly left the highest thrones of heaven to become the lowest status of earth for me and for you. He died and he resurrected so that we may have new life now and eternal life with him in heaven. And so when we look at this list, the list that we've gone over, it should be on the screen, of how we may put on the attitude of Christ, may we be encouraged knowing that it, even in one act of the gospel, even in one act of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he embodied all of these better than we ever could. 
to a greater degree than we ever could, with more sacrifice than we ever could. And so may we look on the example of Jesus and be encouraged that our God is willing to love people the way that we should, that our God is willing to care and to sacrifice for others the way that we're called to. And may we be willing to place Jesus on the throne of our lives and to work humbly to follow his example until we get our full reward of being with him. Pray with me. God, we love you. Father, we, um, God, it's hard to explain just again sometimes how to respond to just knowing what you sacrificed, what you suffered, doing it for a people who who at the time weren't thankful, Lord, did it for a people who were far from you. So God, may we just grab a hold of, be exhorted and encouraged and pushed by the truth of the gospel. Holy Spirit, please give us the power and the strength to walk out this life how we've been commanded to and how our example in Jesus did. God, we need you daily. Lord, let us dwell with you daily. Just be with us as we continue on in this life and let us look forward to our reward in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.